It's an honor and a privilege to be able to introduce another 90s icon as the newest member of the Honky Tonk Time Machine. And that icon is none other than David Ball. David's always been one of my favorites, and I'm thrilled that we're getting to catch up with him tonight. David, thanks so much for being a part of the Honky Tonk Time Machine. Well, it's my pleasure, man. Good to be with you. Throughout the show, we're going to play your biggest hits. We're going to talk about a couple of anniversaries of a couple of those big hits, too. But we're also going to just learn a little bit more about you. So I'm going to start with your roots. Born and raised in South Carolina, I guess, right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, that's where I kind of grew up out there and uh, learned to play a little music and, you know, get an education and all that good stuff. <laughs> Got a good education in, in country music. Um when I listen to your music, I kind of hear the influence from all over, particularly Bakersfield. But who did you admire and, and listen to as you came up? Well, you know, there were a lot of local people. Uh, there was, you know, Spartanburg, for some reason, was uh, all kinds of music and great musicians. And a lot of it was my family. My Both my parents played a little music, my mother especially, and everybody sang. So that was a big, you know, got me started. Um and then, you know, we we listened to a lot of radio, just top 40 radio, which was, uh, you know, when I got to be about 11 or 12, it was all uh, just Roger Miller. Uh, was, I especially remember hearing that stuff. I thought I thought it was pretty wild, you know. <laughs> I didn't, I'd never heard anything quite like Roger Miller. Yeah. And it was, I didn't, you know, I didn't really know what it was. It was like he had that song. Dang me and Chug a Lug. We used to sit up in an apple tree, me and a couple of guys, when we were about 10 or 11, and one of them knew all the words to Chug a Lug. And I just thought that was just the craziest thing. And that was a big influence on me. Yeah. And uh, I, I don't know. You know, my br- older brothers were in, uh, played horns, and they were in the, uh, you know, in the high school and junior high band. And, uh, so I fooled around a little bit with the with the trombone, but um, not really. You know, I was more into playing guitar and singing that that kind of thing. And everybody over there in Carolina played a lot of folk music. If you learned to play guitar, uh, you would learn all these fo- old folk songs and stuff. Yeah, so it's ingrained in you pretty early on in, in your childhood. In fact, I read that you wrote your first song in seventh grade. I believe so. Yes, it was a mighty good song. <laughs> yeah, you know, and everybody, we were always having talent shows and uh, school picnics, so there was always a place, you know, for people to get up and, uh, you know, play a few songs if, if that's what they wanted to do. So uh, I, I remember playing a little bit on in fourth grade, third, you know, playing. A, I had a ukulele and uh We'd do a couple of songs. You know, I'd sing Five Foot Two, Eyes Are Blue, that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. When did you know that you wanted to kind of take that that step, though, into into the big time? Did you know from the beginning, or was that something that came later? You know, I think I, I was always uh, just very fascinated with the idea of radio, and especially, uh, you know, back in the day, you know, the DJ would kind of sell the song and he would talk about something. And, and I just always thought it was real interesting. I didn't know if I wanted to be a DJ or, uh, you know, sing on the radio. I didn't know what, what I wanted to do, but I really liked it. I really liked, uh, you know, having that uh, connection to the radio because, you know, the DJ would make you feel uh 
you know, like you were hearing something really exciting and, and it was exciting, you know, uh, and I, that's, so I, I just kept at it and there were a lot of, like I say, a lot of good musicians in Spartanburg and I kept bumping around and playing with, um, you know, different people in, and in different kinds of music. And I, I switched over from playing guitar and I, I, got fascinated with the upright bass when I was in high school. Hmm. And because of playing that bass, I played with, uh, you know, got to play some bluegrass. I played in the orchestra in high school, or I faked it. You know, I wasn't really uh, <laughs> that good of a reader, but, you know, having a, a, you know, playing guitar and stuff, it really helped. I could, I could tell what, you know, what, what you're doing. And I, I made the effort. I just wanted to see if I could do it, you know, and, um, it was, it was kind of fun. Um, nothing like playing in an orchestra, you know, so, um, but it, you know, it just opened up a lot of doors and I got to play a lot of music. And then I met a couple of guys that were really, really good guitar players. And I knew one of them pretty well. And I would, I got to, they were doing a duet both of them playing acoustic guitars and they were doing a lot of folk stuff and oh, just all kinds of music. And, you know, there was some, a restaurant bar they were playing at. And when I was in high school, I would sneak in there with some friends and I was a big fan of theirs. And then they would let me get up and, uh, you know, sing a song or two. And I think the first song I got up, they would say, and now here's little David Ball to sing, my shoes keep walking back to you. <laughs> and they thought that was so funny. You know, they thought it was so I, I learned that my shoes keep walking back to you, which is no Ray Price song. And I got up and sang it with them. I'm telling you, it was very exciting. <laughs> <laughs> and you, you got the bug, right? I did. I always had the bug. I did. And, uh, so, you know, and and then later joined up with them, you know, and started playing uh, bass and kind of, they, they were so great at harmony. And, and I'd done a little bit of that, but not like these guys. And they, Walter Hyatt, Champ Hood, they were a little bit older than me, but um, they taught me a lot about, you know, harmony and, uh, you know, just, just good music. Walter Hyatt had, had just great well, they both did, you know, they, they were both, Champ Hood was kind of a rock and roller and, and Walter Hyatt was a deep folk musician. He knew all this old, obscure, great music. I had never heard any of it. And so I started picking that up and, and then they began playing some bluegrass, you know, and I would sing a few bluegrass songs with them. And you'd eventually moved to Nashville. Now, was that a departure to, to move to Nashville and, and get away from the folk stuff? Or were you still trying to do that as you as you moved to Nashville? Or how did that kind of work? We did it all. That was one of our strengths and one, one reason people liked us. Now, we played, uh, we were basically kind of a, a folk. We had that format, you know, our our sound was like Peter, Paul, and Mary, but we really didn't play that much of that type of stuff. Um, but we did play the South Carolina Folk Festival, and, and we got to hang out with Doc Watson. And our music was more kind of like Doc, you know, because we had a real good guitar player, Champ Hood would do a lot of flat picking. 
And it was at a time when Doc Watson, you know, he cut uh, uh, Georgia. Uh, you know, he was doing all kind of great music. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we opened up a few shows for Doc and um, had a couple of friends up in Nashville that were doing well. Uh, Marshall Chapman, she was a uh, songwriting and she's from Spartanburg. And so we came on up to Nashville and just kind of hung out, you know, and tried to get some gigs and meet some people and, and it was pretty exciting, but, um, we didn't stay. We, uh, we stayed for about eight months and almost starved to death. Uh, it got pretty tight there mm. for a while. And so we went back to South Carolina and, um, everybody got a job <laughs> and, and, and I worked at the lumber yard. I kind of had a job, you know, and so I got, went back to the lumberyard, and we did that for about four months and got healthy again. <laughs> then <laughs> we got an offer to come to Austin, Texas, through some people we had met in Nashville. And uh, and I think we took a – we hooked up with a fiddler from uh, Durham, North Carolina, and he was fantastic. And so we were now – you know, we were kind of acoustic folk, but doing a lot of original, kind of like Jerry Jeff Walker type stuff. Okay, yeah. That's how you, you know, some of it. And so we all went out to Austin, Texas, and it was fantastic. We we had all the work. That band wanted to just play live and make some pretty good money. You know, we, we, we could play live in Nashville, but we couldn't make no money. <laughs> So, you know, it, Austin worked out really great for us for about four or five years. And uh, and then I stayed out there and I started really going to these honky-tonk, you know, dance halls. And uh, it was all new to me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, you walk in and they got one. We were a band. We had three singers and, you know, kind of played, uh, you know, a lot of picking and stuff. But the bands in Texas, you know, they would be like, heck, they'd have three fiddlers on stage. And, you know, it'd be like seven or eight piece band. Wow. And, uh, you know, four or five hundred people dancing. And I just thought, this is the greatest thing in the world. And the music sounded uh, so good. You know, the, the ceiling was low, but the rooms were, it was almost like a giant skating rink. That's what I, that's what I could compare it to. Cause, uh, you know, it had the big hardwood floor in the middle of the room and then the tables and chairs all around. And, uh, it, I'd never seen anything like it. You know, there wasn't anything like that in Nashville and certainly, uh, Spart- Spartanburg, they kind of had, you know, pavilions and places you could go hear music, but, Boy, these places, you know, and you could tell they'd been there for a long time, and, and it was wonderful. So how did you end up kind of separating ways from those guys and, and kind of going at it on your own then, David? Well, I don't even know. It just, uh, you know, bands go in different directions. And sure. Uncle Walt's band was very experimental. We tr- we would try different things, and uh, um. And we had a real country thing about us, but um, that band was going in different, you know, different directions. And so I 
I was able to get a um, an offer to write songs um, in Nashville. And, you know, at that point, the last thing I wanted to do was go back to Nashville. I was having a lot of fun in Texas. and mm-hmm. um, But, I, you know, I, I came on to Nashville, and, and I heard Randy Travis uh, on the radio going, uh, on the other hand. Mm-hmm. Great song. And I started hearing Ricky Skaggs. Ricky Skaggs was having hit records on the radio with, uh, like old Ray Price song. Yeah, and I I thought, well, now this this is it, this is something I could do in Nashville. This is what I like, and of course George Strait, uh, unwound and his first record, and I, I you know even Ricky Van Shelton. Who else? I, there was a bunch of them, and I really identified with it. So I came on to Nashville and. Uh, once again, like to starve to death. I don't know what it is. You, you know, it's very tough. It is very tough in Nashville. And publishing contract just wasn't paying the bills, I guess. I yeah, and it 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 you know it's a hard way for me to. I'd been writing songs, but it was really a. I, I was here to kind of learn and see how they did it, and but writing songs by appointment in an office. Yeah. I I did it, but I don't think I played any of those. Well, maybe a few of them, you know. But um, I can't I can't write. I don't like to write songs that way. I like to, you know, I'm so crazy. I like to walk. I like to be out in the woods, kind of maybe doing some kind of work or something, <laughs> and uh, or just messing around. And the next thing I know, I'll have a song on my mind, and uh, so it can't be the kind of work that you know, occupies your mind. It has to be something, uh, you know, kind of mundane. And then, you know, then I'm always surprised, it, it, you know, so I'll, I'll lay down that whatever tool or, and I'll go inside and I'll start working on the song and it's fun. I love writing songs. You know, it's, it's a lot of fun. It, it's hard to just sit there and come up with an idea on the spot. <laughs> exactly. But, but staring some, at a blank piece right. of paper is the worst thing you can do. <laughs> but some of the best ideas come when you're, you know, inspired by something that you're doing or, or whatever. So I completely understand that. You'd end up so signing good. with uh, with uh, Warner Brothers, though, through that publishing contract, right? It would ultimately lead to to that big record deal. Yeah, uh, and that you know that worked out good, and I really felt you know pretty confident that we had uh, we had cut three songs, and one of those was Thinking Problem, and we were shopping it, and uh, you know it's that same old story. I mean, you know, people were like. No, no, hmm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and finally somebody at Warner Brothers heard it and they called up, you know, and got in touch and we went down and then they want this and they want that. They want to see me play live. So we had to do that. Uh, but um, the people I was working with um, got some of those musicians that played on the recording. And we went into this little club, so it was a great band, you know. The, that's the one thing about Nashville. The the musicians, you know, here are just phenomenal. They can, as long as they know what you want, they can give it to you. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
but you know, I didn't I didn't pursue that angle. There wasn't much call for upright bass player on some of these records they're making in Nashville at that time. And believe me, there were probably about 200 upright bass players in Nashville that were 10 times better than I was. <laughs> <laughs> I did, I did, somebody called me one time and wanted me to do a demo for them and sing it. Uh, that's hard. I, I couldn't do it. I really couldn't. You know, I, I, they was like, well, we'd appreciate it if you'd sing the melody. And I was like, well, I'm just I'm doing the best I can. But they have a system up here. You know, it's kind of tricky. It's like every note has a number, and they they sing. That's what how they're able to pick it up so quick. Hmm. It's very. It's a little complicated. It's over my head. Well, and you mentioned thinking problem there, so that's a nice segue into the song that would ultimately change your life. It's your first big hit. Ended up being huge. How'd you come up with it? Well, now, funny enough, that is a song that. Thinking back on it now, we did write that in an office. There was a guy that um, was signed to the same publishing company, and we both got to town about the same time. His name was Alan Shamlin, and he was a serious uh, songwriter. That's what he wanted to be. I was kind of looking, you know, at wanting to be a singer, um, but. Um, so he and I got together once or twice and then I go in one day and Alan's, uh, you know, there and he goes, well, David, what would you think about a song, uh, called, uh, yes, I admit I've got a thinking problem. And, and he was talking about, you know, like if these people that go to an AA meeting, they, they stand up and say, yes, I, I have a drinking problem, that kind of thing. And that was his idea. And uh, so we took that approach, you know, uh, yes, I admit I've got a thinking problem. And then we just wrote it, you know, with a title like that and an idea, that's how you approach it in Nashville. You know, you get all your groundwork and then you you fill it in, you know, and uh, I thought Alan was a was a great person to write uh, songs with. And um, he went on and wrote. I was listening to the radio one time, and I, I heard that song, uh, The House That Built Me. Yeah, Miranda Lambert. Miranda Lambert song. Mm-hmm. And, and it had been a long time since I'd heard a song on the radio, and I was like, ah, Lee, I wonder who wrote that. That's that's such a, a well-written song and such a great you know lyric and everything. And, and it had been maybe two years since I'd heard something on the radio, and, and lo and behold, Alan Shamlin, yeah. you know, what a, what a, so he, he's, he's a, just a great writer. So anyway, he and I were kind of learning at the same time. And, um, it, it, it was a, it, it was a bright spot. And, you know, while I was trying to get something going and I had that song really for, uh, you know, a number of years before we got a chance to, record it and it it evolved you know it i i had a little band down in texas and with some of my old buddies and i would go down there maybe you know once every two months and play around in the austin you know we would play out and uh over you know just out and about and i would 
started doing that song down there, and that's where that intro came from, like that, because uh, we didn't have a, you know, we just started, and I, mm-hmm. I started doing that, and I thought, well, that's that's good. That's what makes I the song. I think that's about yeah. I get your attention. It, it, it? Yeah, it grabs those you. Clubs down there, that's what you got to do. You got to get people's attention. So <laughs> it, that's that's what I, you know, I'm really kind of a nightclub singer. I, singing in the studio, that's different. Absolutely. I mean, can you believe, or could you believe at the time? How big it got. I mean, that was that was gee, that was one of the biggest songs on radio at the time and it, it has stuck around for so long. We're going on we're over twenty five years now since it's come out. Well, I was just you know, it to tell you the truth, it was kind of what I like to hear when I turn on the radio. See and it's it, to me it's got with that thing Roger Miller um it it just that's the kind of stuff and it was very much influenced by Texas. Um, and I just like that kind of stuff. I like that. Uh, it's been so long since I've thought about that. But that that was exactly what I was wanting to do. And I'm, you know, I'm glad radio was in a place where, um, you know, they would they would play it. I I had a lot of help with radio stations. A lot of DJs love that record mm-hmm. and they, they played it all the time. Yeah. I heard it so, so much. That, <laughs> <laughs> people, I think some people got sick of it, but I, I sure didn't. No, no, I still love it. I still love it. And I still love to sing it. I never got sick of it. It brings back great memories from my childhood. Every time I hear that first lyric hit, it's, it's awesome. I'll never get tired of it. And, and the whole album, though, David, was was fantastic. Uh, that album also had "When the Thought of You Catches Up with Me," which uh, to me is is right up there with just another one of your great songs. Well, thank you. Yeah, now I did. I wrote that one uh, driving in the car. You know, like what I'm talking about, where your mind is not really, you know, you can wander and and think of things and. Uh, I wrote that just driving down the car road, and it was really pretty simple to to write it. I thought it was, I, I like singing that, and uh, yeah, I, I, we put a we put a lot of good songs on that uh, first record. I, I remember recording, and uh, it, we were having a pretty good time getting it done. It was a uh, it was a lot of fun, a lot of cutting up. We spent more time messing around. Uh, <laughs> cutting up than we did actual work but i think that's the way you got to kind of do it you can't rush it you right know, you can't you don't want to go in there and be all business that'll bleed through into into your music right if you're having fun you you want that to kind of translate into into what you're putting out there yeah i was like well now you can't use that as a vocal and the producer would be like oh we're going to use it <laughs> that sounds kind of squirrely to me but you're the boss <laughs> you would think they would know a little more about it's you know they they I, the best thing about them is they they believe in luck so I believe in luck too you know you got to have luck and mm-hmm. you got to have talent but man the, the the amount of talent I've heard so many great singers they're just you know all up and down Broadway and phenomenal you know it's just it's funny how it works out for some people and then other people you know they just can't seem to get arrested. It's you gotta. It takes a team, you know. You gotta have a team. Good lawyer. Yeah, bad lawyer. 
Good lawyer, if there is such a thing. I, I never was. I couldn't find one. But. Yeah, a lawyer good at his job and a good lawyer. I guess that's two different things, right? <laughs> <laughs> hey, I like that. I'm going to put that in a song. <laughs> I'm glad I can help. It'll be your next big hit. I also wanted to bring up Look What Followed Me Home, too. I was always a fan of that song, David. Now, uh, there was a guy that I wrote a lot of songs with. His name was Tommy Polk. And uh, I I thought it was pretty good. And then, you know, like I say, you, you, it takes a lot of people. This was a, uh, you know, there has to be kind of a committee. And uh, they just thought that was a great uh, song. Um. And I thought, you know, this piano player that they booked on the session, I thought he added, you know, all the musicians were great. But this guy was kind of a New Orleans-style piano Mm -hmm. player. And that's, you know, after spending all that time in Texas, man, it it, especially East Texas, where all of this music is still, uh, you know, I, I go out there and play and have a great time and a good crowd. And it made it a little different, you know. It gave it, it gave it kind of that swinging. It made the music bounce, which makes for good dance music. See, that's that's what I like, and that's what we were able to capture in that piano player on that record. Uh, especially, we did one honky tonk healing. You know, yep. it just had a little hop to it, and uh, I think the record label. A lot of them were thinking that Blowing Smoke was a song on that first record, and they were going to put that out as a first single. But then the record label started uh, playing some songs at radio, and and the station in Louisiana heard Thinking Problem, and without, you know, they have to get everybody, well, you know, see, you're in radio, (laughs) so, you know, okay, I don't need to explain it to you, but everybody's supposed to get on the record at basically the same time. Right. That's what allows you know them to climb I mean? the chart. Right. Yeah. Well, this guy in Louisiana, three weeks before we even put a record out, thinking he's turned thinking problem into his most requested song on his station. That's the story that, you know, that I got. And I, I think it's true. I, I mean, I, he just jumped on it and loved it and kept playing it. And so they decided to go with thinking problems and we didn't go with, uh, blowing smoke. And they, I don't think we ever put blowing smoke out as a, no. Yeah. Not as a radio single, single, but it worked out for you. Those three hits that I just mentioned were all huge radio hits. Plus a couple other releases helped that album to go platinum. Speaking of which, the 25-year anniversary of that album just came out. I guess it was a couple years ago, wasn't it? Yeah, remastered it, repackaged it. I think made me look a little more handsome, I think, in some photographs. <laughs> I don't know how they did that. That's funny how that works. <laughs> Is that even possible? I don't know. It's not just you they do it with. I think they do that with just about everybody. But but yeah, that, that is available now for, for people to pick up and, and kind of relive some of those memories, too, so. It, it was a lot of fun putting that record out. I remember hearing it first time I heard Thinking Problem on the radio. I, you know, I, I I liked it. I thought, yeah, this is more of that kind of stuff, you know. And um, But then we went out and toured, you know, got on opening up for, uh, oh, golly, a lot of, you know, big names. And it was a good fit, you know. It, it was a, 
I opened, I did a whole bunch with Dwight Yoakam and uh, Brooks and Dunn, uh, a little bit with Alan Jackson, who, you know, I really admired what he was doing, Mm -hmm. you know, because he wrote all of his stuff, you know, and that's kind of what I was trying to, you know, write a bunch of my stuff to. Now, his biggest thinking problem was you would think that radio stations would have jumped on the next album as well. That album was called Starlight Lounge, and the first single from it, Circle of Friends, it didn't really chart all that high. It seemed like stations were kind of staying away from it, and you can say the same about the follow-up to that album, Play. So it did end up like six years between your big hits, Riding with Private Malone being the next one, but why do you think that was? What was going on during that time that your mainstream success started to dip a little bit? Man, you don't even want to know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, now I do. <laughs> I, you know, it was just about everything. Um, like I say, it takes it takes a team. It really, you got to have a manager that. And see, I got that record deal, and was on the way in the middle of making a record. I didn't even have a manager. You know, we just did it, mm-hmm. and so. The management thing was not my strong point, you know, and I, I didn't realize how Nashville operated. I didn't understand, uh, you know, the. I just, I didn't, you know, that was the last thing. What I was interested in was making music and trying, and, you know, to tell you the truth, the only thing I wanted to do was to put out a single, a record on the radio that did, affected people like the way Roger Miller affected me. Like, I wanted something that was um, really big, <laughs> you know, yeah. that was different. And, and it kind of, you know, ha- had a thing about it. And, you know, when Thinking Problem happened... That was exactly what I wanted to happen. And so my goal, I I accomplished. That was all I was wanting to do was make, you know, make a few hit records. Um, But it would have been nice if uh, that second album had been, uh, because there were some some stout songs on there, some of the best songs I'd written. And uh, I don't know, there were changes going on at the record label. There were changes going on. on my end with uh, producers, manager, and somehow it just all got lost in the shuffle. You know, mm-hmm. like I, I didn't have proper uh, representation, and I didn't, I didn't realize you need somebody in there that you know knows how to, you know, make it happen. Because uh, I don't know, I, I felt like maybe we didn't have to work real hard to get thinking problem um, played and it was a well it went to number two it didn't go to number one but it was a big record and I think maybe the politics you know it'd be better to have a you put out your first record why it goes to number 22 and then you know a a slow build up Mm -hmm. I think thinking problem caught, caught everybody by surprise even the guy, even the guy that was my publisher, he, he he didn't even like that song. See, so I was I was working with a bunch of people that 
um, you know, they were surprised, which is, you know, I like that. You know, nothing like people going, what is this? <laughs> um, but, you know, it, like I say, it caught them by surprise. And, how, you know, how do you – I think a lot of it was like, well, how is he going to follow up thinking problem? You know, that was a an undeniable – you know, so you, it would have been better if you kind of built up, mm-hmm. you know, instead of putting, putting. I guess you could say putting your best song out first. You know, hold it back. Well, and uh, prime the pump. But see, we didn't. Nobody knew what the heck they were doing. So <laughs> you know, they didn't. They certainly didn't think Thinking Problem was going to be as big a record as it was when we put it out. I, we hoped it would be. I, I certainly did. Well, it was true then, and it's more true now. It, it really is all about that push that you get, you know, from your record label. That that makes that makes all the difference. Well, yeah, yeah, and um, you know, I went to work. I was out there up and down the road. And I wasn't, I, you know, the business end of it. I, you know, I've never, I've never participated in that stuff. You know, I, I like to get up there and get on the mic, and sing, and you know, everybody has a good time, and then that's that's what I do. But a lot of these guys in town that I've met, boy, they know, they know the business, and they know, um, they know what they're doing. You know, this is what we got to have. This is how we're going to get it. And it's a, it's like a game plan. I had no game plan. I still don't. That's not how I, you know, operate. It's, uh, it's more of a, you know, I, I like the, I like the idea of do something big, um, that, that changes the rules. You know, they're, they're not, that's what I like about the music and, uh, in the business, you know, there are no rules, any, mm-hmm. anything. And that's what I like about Nashville. Anything is possible. <laughs> so, you know, it's like unlimited. It's like the, when you walk into a studio, I always get the feeling of, you know, unlimited possibilities. You would do something big in 2001 when you put out Riding with Private Malone. And we're actually almost exactly 20 years removed from that. And, and what I love about that song in particular is that it came out before 9-11 happened. So it was a patriotic song before it got really cool to be patriotic. And and that, David, for me, is what I have always appreciated about riding with Private Malone. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, Wood Newton wrote that song, and he had a, a wrote it with Tom Shepard, and he had a cousin that went to Vietnam, and then when he came back, you know, the the next day after he got back from Vietnam, he was killed in a car wreck. And uh, I think that was part of the, where this song came from. And when I first heard it, I Wood was telling, Wood and I were working on that record. And he started, we met Tom Shepard at this radio thing. At, uh, it was called Opry After Hours. And it was a radio show that came on like midnight after the Grand Ole Opry. Hmm. And uh, Tom Shepard was there, and we were all sitting around playing songs. And, you know, Wood Newton wrote Bobby Sue. And, oh, he wrote, you know, a bunch of great stuff. And yeah. He and I just were putting this record together. And 
so him and Tom Shepard got together and they started working on, you know, different things. And they finally, Wood was telling me about it and I was fascinated with the idea. And, and um, he was like, well, come on and help us finish it. And I said, no, man, y'all got a great, just let me hear it when it's done. And uh, Wood gave me a rough tape of it and I have a little studio and I made a tape of it that was, you know, really learned the song. And uh, Wood says I changed it, but I I didn't I wasn't trying to change it. I was just trying to get it organize it a little bit. And um, it, I just thought it was really uh, you know you could you could tell it had a, it it meant something to all those guys that went to Vietnam that got such a raw deal when they came back or while they were over in, in Vietnam, you know, what a mess all that was. And here's this little song that is just a nod uh, to all of those guys, all the people that, that went through that. And um, I, I just thought it was time, you know, to show them some respect and, and with, you know, without, it's not really a patriotic uh, song, but it definitely stirs that stirs people up a little bit. And uh, I, I thought it was a, a wonderful song, and I was so glad that um, you know radio picked up on it because there again, you know, we didn't we didn't do any heavy promotion. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, you were independent you know, at the time, right? You d- you didn't have a major label behind you at at that point, did you? No, no, yeah. we we never did. I've never been on a major label since. But um, yeah, and it was almost like they were kind of an obscure, you know, artistic type of r- record label. I think the last thing they wanted was a hit record, but we gave them one, and uh, I thought it was fantastic. And and boy, uh, I, I I had a couple. We had a we knew what we were doing on that one. And man, the next song that was a single was "Whenever You Come Back to Me," one of my favorite all time songs. And nobody touched it, hmm. you know, because we didn't we didn't have a you know, whatever it is, you know. Some people say it's money, but I you know you just have to you just have to have um, you know that promotion team that right. I think a lot of people were working against us too, you know, they, Nashville, the independent record label and, you know, um, there came a time in Nashville when accountants, Chet Atkins was leaving and, you know, the, the heads of label, they used to be kind of artistic people, especially, you know, like Chet Atkins. Yeah. And, um, then the, you know, it changed more into uh, the accountants. Well, that's a that's a hard person to get excited about. You know, <laughs> I got this new song. I got this, like, you know, the Wood and them played that song around town for some people, you know, that they're trying to get some help. And they played it, and the, the guy's response was, he heard the whole song, and he said, what do you mean you only paid $1,000 for a Corvette? <laughs> <laughs> And so, uh, what are you, what are you going to do? You know, what are you going to do? That's what makes Nashville interesting. Completely, <laughs> completely missed the whole point, didn't he? 
what do you, I don't get it. I, oh, goodness. Seriously, though, the, the success of that song without having a big label push is, is pretty impressive. Um, there was one other song that year. A guy named Mark McGuinn put out a song that was also independent. It made 2001 the first year in like almost 20 years that two independent songs would go top 10. So a huge, huge accomplishment for you. This is Stephen Rudy. Was that yep. what it was? That's it. That was it. Yep. Yep. Harold Shedd produced that record. I met him, and I think uh, I think we did a show together somewhere one time. Oh, really? And boy, that was a that was a huge record. Oh yeah, it was. It it was a little bit of a different sound. You know, it was kind of the way it was going at that at that time. But I know my, I remember my mom being a big fan of that song. So. At the same time, you know, you we do enter into a realm of, you know, a hit record. A hit record can be, you know, it could be many anything. You never know, I guess. You know what's gonna what's oh. gonna hit and resonate with people, right? Well, somebody better know. I wish they did. They they don't want my opinion. I you know I never was one to jump up on the desk and and you know sell it. Now somebody else's stuff I can. That's why I like being in a band. But, mm-hmm. You know, when it comes to my own stuff, either somebody's got to come and get it. That's why it's good to work with. You know, I was glad to get uh, work with that guy Wood Newton. You know, because he did all the leg work and he can sell it. See, and it's you know, he's trying to sell me. So that worked out pretty good. I think you and I have that in common. Touting yourself as something that just doesn't come natural to certain people. I fit in that category, and it sounds like you do, too. I want to get into some of your more recent projects. Your latest album, it's been out a couple years now. It's called Come See Me. It's kind of a a stripped-down, raw production, but really, really good. I know it. See, now that's my first. I hope I do another one because, you know, I have gotten better. Okay. I I played every instrument on this record. I think Scott Metco came. He wanted to play drums, he, so I said, "Okay, all right, okay." <laughs> you let him. You and let him play drums. drums on some of it, but a lot of it, 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 it was. I had or getting organized problems because, uh, and some technology. You know, this was all new to me. This recording and doing it myself. Because you did it but, at home, right? You did it in your home studio. I did it. I did it at home, and I tell you, it was so much fun. Um, but the, you know, it it, I I like. I was I wasn't thinking of putting it out. These are really demos, but, um, you know, it's it's very raw. It's very raw. But uh, <laughs> if you <laughs> if you get it on a real good sound system and you crank it up. I hope it's got some groove factor and, um, yeah, you know, it's got some great songs on it. Hey, that song, Come See Me, um, you know, I'd, I'd cut all this stuff and then I'd put it in the car and I'd be out, have to take a trip or something. <clears throat> I'd listen to it. Well, I heard that song, the, the demo that's on the record of Come See Me, and I thought, well, if I go in the studio... I'm going to try and copy that. There's not really much anything else I want to do to it. And this sounds pretty good. Um, but, you know, I got a real expensive system in the car. You got to get it on something that, you know, you can't 
can't listen to it on an iPhone, but uh, mm-hmm. I hope to do another one because, boy, I've got the songs. And, um, I, you know, it's just me having fun, really. And that's, that's the main reason I play music, you know, is, is, uh, because it's fun. And, um, you know, sometimes it got some of these studios. I mean, like I say, they're the greatest musicians, but a lot of, you know, the kind of music that I like to do was not in favor. And it, it really did get very corporate, uh, you know, okay, the session will start at 10 a.m. and we will break for lunch and then we will, you know, install these rules. And I, I just, you know, so I, I didn't, uh, I didn't go that route. And, um, you know, I, I just had fun. So I don't know. <laughs> I don't think we've gotten any bad reviews on it, but it, <laughs> it certainly is. Kind of, if nobody's heard it. So. I listened to it uh, leading up to, to this interview. And I'll, I'll give you a good review on it. I really enjoyed it. Well, thank you. Also, uh, I enjoyed the uh, the cover art on it. Um, <laughs> that's another I, thing. I'm, I'm sure there's a story behind it. <laughs> well, I was just coloring and, you know, I think I was, my when my daughter was very young, seven years old, we would sit and draw sometimes and that's, that's a picture that came out and I had a, I had a guy playing a guitar and then I had another guy that was playing a, an accordion, but he looked in the face. He looked just like Radney Foster. Okay. Yeah. So, so I thought, well, I can't, I can't put Radney Foster face <laughs> on my record. That, that'll really confuse people. <laughs> so we went with, went with the other guy. He doesn't look anything like me, but. At least people won't think it's a Radney Foster record. It's but we just it had Radney. Not be a bad thing to do. We just had Radney on not too long ago, so funny you bring him up. <laughs> well, I, you should see this picture. It looks exactly like him. Really? I don't know how it happened with the glasses and everything? Yes. Yep. Yes. <laughs> Come see me, and it is available now. If you want to pick that up, I know uh, David, you've got it available on your website. I know I've seen it on Amazon as well, so it's it's out there. Well, there you go. See, you might have sold me some records. There. Well, that's the plan, David. We got you on the show. I want to sell you some records. <laughs> if I well, davidball.com or Amazon. Yeah, it's called Come See Me. It's They're kind of glorified uh, demos, and I hope to do I've gotten better some different, you know, miking situations. I've learned how to, you know, kind of, you know, get better tones mm-hmm. and uh but i you know and trying to record that upright bass man whew, if anything got slow or i got bogged down i would just steamroll over it you know plow through it yeah and, uh you know and i was real into um a lot of this buck owens kind of raw country music from uh that era I've always loved that, so I was kind of going, you know, back for that real twangy, simple electric guitar, which is all I can do on an electric guitar, to tell you the truth, it fits. That's part of why I play country music, just because it was such a, you know, a, a, it fit me, 
you know, it fit the way I sang. And I, I kind of knew that as early as the, you know, when I was like in the third grade or fourth grade, I just really identified, you know, with that that stuff. I thought, you know, I, I, I can do this. This is something that I would enjoy to, you know, play. It's fun. Do you still play shows? Do you get around and, and, and do any type of touring nowadays or... Well, we just did one, but very little, and I might not really go do anything until see what see what's happening after mm-hmm. Christmas, because you know the minute you get everything in place, ready to go, well, then here comes some. Well, everybody's got to you got to be back. You got to wear a mask, or you got to be vaccinated. I don't want to get into all that. What I like to do is play uh, a lot of these nightclubs. You know, that's been fun. My Lord, we did that. After uh, Private Malone, man, we did 10 or 15 years of just, uh, you know, any place that was fun to go play, we would go do it. And uh, that was our emphasis. If the gig wasn't going to be fun, it would cost you twice as much. But if it was fun, man, we we had a good time. We had a good band, four-piece band, you know. Um, But, see, that's all those guys kind of – one of them moved to Florida. The other one went to work, and COVID kind of shut everything sure. down. And it's still kind of shut down, but uh, it was looking like it was coming back. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of half back and half shut down. It's it's just kind of a weird place right now. It's kind of in limbo, I guess. Limbo. Yes. I could. I'm ready to put out another hit record, but <laughs> well, I hope that's you're kind of like the the old horse, you know, that <laughs> delivered the milk. You might be dating me there. <laughs> well, they they would say, you know, once you retired those horses from, from delivering milk, they'd be in the stall, and about 5.30 in the morning, they'd start pawing. You uh-huh. know, they would be, like, ready to go. Yeah. The trucks had taken over, well, and there was old Nelly in the stall, ready to go. You know what they did? They tied her to the back of the old truck. Oh really? She could walk. Yeah, she could walk along with. <laughs> walk along with the milk That's truck. Me. Right. <laughs> well, I got to admit, this interview has taken a turn that I did not expect. Do yourself a favor, pick up David Ball's new album or his latest album, "Come See Me." And while you're out at the 25th anniversary of Thinking Problem, pick that up too. David, I've had a lot of fun just talking to you, reliving some of these old memories. It's been a blast. I I sure appreciate you taking some time and, and coming on my show. Well, anytime, anytime, man. Thank you very much.